So we've been talking about Set Free actually since uh, it was around this time last year, it was slightly before this, that you heard us mention Set Free Alaska uh, and their uh, intentions to come to Homer. Uh, we don't, although, although we have actually members of our church that are now are on staff with Set Free, Church on the Rock doesn't have any official capacity other than that. We're big fans, and uh, we wanted to be a part of help making that happen. Um, as you guys know, uh, for those of you who have been tracking with this, uh, there has been uh, some uh, obstacles, uh, some bumps in the road in the journey of uh, coming to Homer. Is that a, that's a fair statement, right? Um, uh, but this is, this is my observation uh, over the last uh, probably six months is that uh, Set Free as an organization under Phil's leadership has responded to those obstacles with a tremendous amount of grace, a tremendous amount of humility, uh, with kindness, with gentleness, and all of that without sacrificing a determination to make good resources available to people who are struggling with addiction. Uh, Phil has become a friend of mine over the last year. Um, I've been just so impressed uh, with his leadership, uh, with his compassion for those who struggle in this area. And I will say this about Phil. Um, uh, Philip Licht, through Set Free Alaska and all of his staff and his team and his board, they are changing the landscape uh, of the state in regards to ministering to those in addiction and doing just a phenomenal job. And he's our preacher this morning, so would you guys welcome Phil Licht to the stage. Hello. My name is Philip Licht, and I am the executive director of Set Free Alaska. Our mission is to facilitate freedom from the bondage of addiction. The state of Alaska is facing an epidemic surrounding addiction. Opioid abuse, alcoholism, and other substances are causing incredible damage to individuals, families, and our communities. Our agency offers programs for adults and teens in an outpatient and intensive outpatient setting. We also have programs for children ages 5 to 17 who are having behavioral health issues as a result of trauma. We have a residential program for women, including pregnant women and women with children. If you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, or if you have a child with behavioral health problems, I want you to know that there is hope. Please give us a call. Hundreds have come through our program and found recovery from addiction and found hope for their destiny and for their future. I'm so glad you're here. Let me pray for you and we'll jump in. God, I do thank you for Philip. Uh, I thank you for the ministry of Set Free. I thank you for our time this morning. I thank you for your word that is alive, that is powerful, that is active. I ask that you would give us hearts that are open to hear from you this morning. God, that as you speak, we would be those who listen and listen carefully and commit ourselves to agreeing and obeying your voice. We love you. We come before you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Moses once said, I am the most humble man in the world. Every time I hear someone talk about us walking in humility, that goes through my mind. It's like, I am the most humble man in the world. Almost sounds uh, counterintuitive. About seven years ago, my wife and I were at Palmer at a grocery store. We had our kiddos with us, and we were going shopping. I had this brilliant idea. 
we would divide and conquer. Now, men, I just want to let you know right now, don't ever think you can accomplish more without your wives than you can with them. So I take my two oldest, our six-year-old and my four-year-old, and we go off to the movie section. Now, this was back in the day when you could actually rent movies from a store a long time ago. And we get our movie and mission accomplished. We're going back through the store trying to find my wife. And I look down and I realize my four-year-old Evan is not with us. So I look around, no big deal, but I don't see him anywhere. So I ask my six-year-old, Brayden, where's your brother? And he points over at the produce. He says, he's over by the fruit. Okay, off to the fruit we go. Now as I come around the corner, I see the last thing on the earth that I wanted to see at that moment, and it wasn't my son climbing up the aisle, it wasn't him tearing things off the shelf and breaking them, it was my wife, who's with me this morning, coming around the corner, and what took me minutes to notice took her only seconds. First thing out of her mouth, where's Evan? To which I very boldly and confidently replied, over by the fruit. (laughs) So off we go to the fruit, but no Evan. And now our Walking is getting faster, our searching is getting a little more frantic, and we can't find him anywhere until finally a lady at the bank asks us, are you looking for a young child? And as we reply, yes, she says, I saw one run out of the store a while ago. That's what I did. Oh my goodness, we run outside and we look around, but we don't see him anywhere. Finally, we found him standing by the door of our vehicle, crying, and I scooped him up into my arms and I held him close, and he said, Dad, I prayed and I asked God to help you find me because I was lost, and I knew that I needed to be found. Now, it's, it's easy for us to understand that it's not good for a four-year-old to be alone. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that it's not good for us as adults to be alone. After God created, he looked at man and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Now, you might be here this morning feeling alone. Maybe you've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus, or maybe you just feel far from him this morning. No matter where we're at in the journey or what difficult things we might be facing, the trials that might lay ahead, Jesus has a promise for each one of us, a promise found in John 14, verse 18, I will never leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, the lost ones that he had found, those who had become his close friends, who had stuck by him even when everyone else had left. And they were getting ready to face their greatest trials. The promise to sustain them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now imagine spending several years of your life walking, talking, and being with Jesus in the flesh, listening to him teach and ministering alongside of him, asking him questions. It's hard to think of anything better than that. And not only that, but the Jesus that was with them was also going to take over. He was going to overthrow the Roman Empire, and they were going to get to lead by his side and Reap the spoils of all of his gains, right? Now, Jesus understood their weaknesses. He understood the unrealistic expectations. 
He knew about their overconfidence and the fact that they were utterly unprepared to face what was coming. Now, Pastor Aaron did a great job last week of setting the context for these passages in John 14 through 16 we're going to be looking at this morning. A context in which Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure with a mysterious wisdom. I had a professor at Stanford named Jennifer Akers. She's taught a class called Storybook Innovation, and she was a researcher who studied the impact of stories and how the power of a story could impact a human life. And she followed a model called the Story Arch, which goes a little something like this. Ordinary person faces extraordinary odds to accomplish something quite remarkable. Now, this course was in the Graduate School of Business, so it was being taught through a business lens, which goes a little different. Ordinary person faces extraordinary odds to accomplish something quite remarkable by means of a new innovation. Now, the goal is to understand that the ordinary person, which is your customer, and what is the extraordinary odd they're facing, which is their pain point. The something that they can accomplish, which is quite remarkable, is you, by your company, alleviating their pain point and bringing them to a new state of bliss through a new means, a new innovation, which of course is your product. Now, I kind of doubt that Jesus went to Stanford, although if he did go to college, he probably would have gone to Stanford. And I kind of doubt that he took Miss Aker's class but he understood the power of stories. In fact, I think he wrote the curriculum. In this passage, we see some ordinary disciples. They're facing extraordinary odds to achieve something quite remarkable by means of his new innovation. Jesus had declared to them, you're going to accomplish something great. In fact, even greater works than I do, you're going to do. And he's creating an urgency of their need by saying, you're going to face some extraordinary odds. Trouble is coming. And the recognition of that need prepares them to open their eyes to the awareness of their need for his innovation. Spoiler alert, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus doesn't just declare, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. He also reveals four Extraordinary odds his disciples are going to be unable to either accomplish or endure without this new innovation. The first is found in John 14, verses 15, 21, and 23 through 24. He says to them, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. He goes over and over in these passages, and actually again in chapter 13, at least five or six times he ties together love and obedience. Again in verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Again in 24, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And he really just drives it home in 15 and takes it to a new level. He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Verse 12, love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. Remember, Jesus is talking here mostly to fishermen and 
working class, men in a very difficult age in history. And I want you to imagine the roughest, toughest, no-nonsense, hard-working, maybe even a little off-color fishermen here in the community of Homer. That's the kind of men that were following Jesus around. Even John, the writer of this book, who was nicknamed the disciple of love, wanted to call down fire and destroy the Samaritans just because they didn't welcome them properly. These are not loving men. I want you to love everyone else in the same way that I've loved you. Jesus said, follow me. Love your neighbor as yourself. Even if you think of doing harm towards someone, you've murdered them. Even if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. Leave everything you've ever known and radically give your life to me for the sake of the kingdom. And love is the new standard. Extraordinary odds, impossible for them to accomplish without him. I'll just think back through the gospels for a minute All that Jesus had asked them to do in their constant failures, their arrogance, their pride, their selfishness, every one of them will go on from this point to abandon him and betray him in his greatest time of need. Not one of them has the capacity to obey or to love, even when he was right there with them. I think we would all agree this morning that when we're lost and alone, In our place of brokenness and frailty, we too have little ability to obey or to love. I can imagine in that moment, every disciple knew they did not have what it took to accomplish that which Jesus was requiring of them. Now on a little sidebar, there's a a truth, a principle that we need to get here. We cannot will or discipline ourselves to obedience. It's impossible to obey his commands by the strength of our resolve. This isn't about pulling up our bootstraps or gritting our teeth. Love is the means to obedience. He didn't say, if you're obedient, then you love me. He said, if you love me, you will obey. I like how the Passion Translation puts John 14, 15. It says, loving me empowers you to obey my commands. Oftentimes we focus our attention on the problem, on the lack, in the area of our lives that we might need more discipline in. And I'm sure that there's an area of your life, even this morning, that you might be feeling that you need to improve upon or falling short. Attempting to discipline yourself, focusing on the issue, will never profit you long-term gains. If we lack obedience, we lack love. If we lack the love flowing out, we lack revelation of his love flowing in. Our focus shouldn't be downstream on the issue. We need to go upstream to the source of the problem. We love him because he first loved us. Meditation and study on the subject of God's love and sacrifice will fill our hearts with the revelation of his love. And and thus it will increase our ability to love him in return. If you're struggling with sin today, you don't need greater resolve. You need greater revelation. Revelation will cause you to overflow in your love for him because you don't want to do anymore that which could potentially hurt his heart. 
And we don't stare at that thing that's distracting us and by the strength of our will say no. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we get a revelation of him. And and in that place, we turn around and we see that which distracted us in view of the surpassing glory of Jesus our Lord. And all of a sudden, we are filled with a revelation that enables us to overcome The second extraordinary awe they're getting ready to face is found in John 14, verse 30 and 31. I'll not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes, listen to this, so that he, so that the world may know that I love my father and do exactly what the father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. The enemy is coming. And hell's coming with him. Actually, I think that last part was a quote from Tombstone about Wider, but you get the picture. You're, you're engaged here in an epic battle against good and evil, and the ruler of this world is coming. Now, Jesus doesn't leave him without hope. He says, don't worry, he's got nothing in me. The devil doesn't realize it, but he is actually coming so that I can demonstrate what I'm trying to tell you that I can demonstrate to the world and show what it looks like to be motivated by love. I'm getting ready to display the greatest act of love and obedience to my Father that's ever been displayed. The disciples may be thinking, well, this is good. I guess there's someone bad coming, but it sounds like Jesus has got it under control. He's going to take care of it, right? Wrong. Jesus goes on to extraordinary odd number three. You know this bad guy that I mentioned? Once he's done with me, you're next. He's coming after you. John chapter 16, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. Did he just say kill? I thought we were going to be ruling and reigning and overthrowing Rome here. Now, there's a confrontation technique that was made popular a while back. It's called the sandwich technique. You see, it goes like this. And Jesus was the master of this. I'm going to tell you something good. Then I'm going to tell you something bad. Then I'm going to tell you something good again so that you leave the conversation feeling positive about yourself, you know. And he's doing this. He's going back and forth. I'll give you an example. Now, I brought you into my office today. Talk to you about something. I just want you to know, I can see the hard work, dedication that you have to this job. You really give it your all. Now, unfortunately, your skill and talent is impacting your ability to do the job well, despite all your effort. (laughs) And we're going to need to make a change here, because if we can't improve your performance, we're going to have to let you go. Now, you're one of the most loyal people we have at this company. And your coworkers also really help you. So I hope this works out, okay? We good here? Now, I actually call this a crap sandwich. And you can see the... Uh... Forgive me for that. I just couldn't help it. Um... Jesus is the creator of the sandwich technique. Look at what he does here in chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. and verse 16, it's beautiful. He says... All this I've told you so that you won't fall away. There's the good news. 
Oh, by the way, they're going to excommunicate you from the church. And that actually means you probably won't be able to do business in the community either. I mean, this isn't just like your church kicking you out. This is the community rejecting you. And not only that, but they're going to come kill you. And then he ends with this great positive note. He says, hey, in a little while, you'll get to see me again. Extraordinary odds. Don't you love how Jesus is the master of stirring up a circumstance that highlights our need for him? A few years ago, several of my children, especially my oldest, were really vying for a dog. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a horrible American. I don't like animals. (laughs) And I really did not want a dog. By the way, a little side note, we were here this summer, we went over to the Weiser's house, and as we were leaving, my kids all confronted us with the information that every child in the Weiser home gets their own pet. (laughs) To which, you know, in my fatherly, loving way, I wanted to point them back to the Lord, so I said, you know, you should pray and ask Jesus why he didn't have you born into the Weiser household. (laughs) And I, you know, I've never got the opportunity to thank the wisers for that. Thanks for setting the bar so high for the rest of us, all right? <laughs> so back to my story. I'm wrestling through this. Should we get a dog? Should we not? And we're on our annual vacation in San Diego. Because by the way, this is what people without 15 animals do. We go on lots of vacations. <laughs> so we're in San Diego, and it just all of a sudden seems my family's convinced that now God is highlighting to us that we need a dog. Now they brought God into it, and I'm toast. I have no hope here. We come back from a walk, and there's a golden retriever and their owner sitting on our porch, trespassing. (laughs) Everywhere we go, we're meeting people, and it's golden retriever after golden retriever, and we're spending time one night after dinner with Jesus, and my second son, Evan, begins to weep. And I can tell he's getting touched by the Lord, and after praying, he describes us that while we were praying, he was seeing how God cares about each one of us and what's important to us. And he went around the family. He said, Mom, see, you care about this. And Dad, you care about this. And he was talking about each of the siblings. And he made sure to point out that Braden really cares about this dog. And God, as a, as a loving father, cares about the things which are important to us. <laughs> He's in tears. So the next morning, I walked down to the beach, and I'm spending some time alone with the Lord, and I could feel the Father stir in my heart, and realizing that my desire for my kiddos to have what they want and what they desire is overwhelming my desire to not have a dog. And God is using that to show me about his heart and his love and his care for us as his children. So here's Caspian. He was the greatest dog, and this, also, my children. (laughs) This was a couple years ago. He was the greatest dog we could have ever hoped for. Even I almost liked him. (laughs) Now, the one thing we didn't know when we got Caspian is he had a major heart defect. And the vet told us he'd probably live about two years. 
the breeder offered us a chance to return it, and I asked my oldest Braden, who was his dog, he said, you know, I believe that God led us to this dog, and I, I want to ask God to heal him, and if he doesn't, then I'm going to be thankful for the time that we got with him. That's my 11-year-old. I said, all right, we're going to believe, and we're going to walk this out as a family, and this summer, Caspian died. Now, I'll never forget putting him in my car as his heart was failing, his lungs were filled with liquid, and we're taking to put him down, and my entire family standing in the driveway crying. And I'm taking him off to the vet, and I'm asking the Lord, what is this all about? Like, it seemed like you were the one who led us to this point, and I didn't even want this dog. And this is certainly not how I thought this was going to work out. Which brings us to extraordinary odd number four. The disciples are facing probably the most difficult of all of the extraordinary odds because it wasn't a struggle externally, it was a struggle within. It was the struggle of disappointment. How do we deal with hurt caused by circumstances in our lives? What is our response when things don't go the way that we thought they should go? Now, my story was real and it was hard, but this is first world American kind of problems, right? The disciples are getting ready to face significant challenges. Significant. I'm not talking about my pastor's not living up to my expectations or the worship's too fast or slow or loud or soft or I thought things should be like this and even a leader that I'm following has a major character flaw or a moral failing. I'm talking about a bomb getting ready to go off in their lives. Everything that they thought was gonna happen, the man that they'd given their lives for, that they laid everything down and behind to follow him, to rule and to reign with him was getting ready to be shattered. And he was going to be brutally murdered. And they were going to follow in his footsteps. Jesus could see the disappointment stirring in their hearts. And he says in John 16, verse 6, he says, You're filled with grief because the things that I've just said. And this is just the beginning of their grief and disappointment. This may very well be the easiest of the extraordinary odds for us to relate with. Unrealistic or unmet expectations are the mother of all disappointment. How we deal with our disappointment determines whether we grow closer or farther away from those in relation to us, especially in our relationship with God. If you find yourself disappointed with God, the problem isn't with his performance. It's with your expectation of what his performance should have been. Now, looking at him through the lens of your hurt will skew the nature and character in your perception. The scripture is our lens to the nature and character of God, not our experience. Now, these ordinary disciples were called to achieve something quite remarkable. Jesus was leaving and he was going to use them to do greater things. He was going to spread the message of the kingdom throughout the known world. They were preparing to face extraordinary odds and they were unprepared. 
but he was priming the pomp and preparing them with the urgency of the need so that he could reveal to him his new innovation, a radical innovation that would change everything. Last week I was listening to Pastor Aaron's sermon and I was chuckling at the thought of Jesus ascending into heaven and saying, I will be with you always. It kind of reminded me of that movie, The Titanic. Remember at the end, the boat's sinking and the, the lady is on the plank and DiCaprio's in the water and they're holding on and he says, never let go. And she looks at him and he, she says, I'll never let go. And then she lets go and he floats to the bottom and drowns. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'll never leave you. I'm going to leave you, but I'll be with you always. Where I'm going, you can't come, but I'll never leave you as orphans. You're going to face some extraordinary odds, but you're not going to have to face them alone. I have a new innovation, something that's never even been conceived of before. The promise from my father, the answer to your urgent need. John Chapter 14, verse 16 and 26 through 27, he begins to lay out the promise of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of all the things that the Spirit is going to do for them in their lives. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give to you another advocate. He will help you. He will be with you forever. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things. He will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace be with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. John 16, again, in verse 7 and 13 through 15, he goes on, very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I go away. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, he will not speak on his own. He will only speak that which he hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. What I'm getting ready to do is better than me being with you in the flesh because I cannot impact you externally in the way that I can internally. You see, you've got a problem. You're dead inside because of sin. You need a transformation of heart. What we can do together when I come and take up residence within you far surpasses what we can do together with me alongside the Spirit of God indwelling man is greater than man walking with God in the cool of the day. Jesus goes on to pray, John 17, prayer that ties it back to the sum of the overcoming and the challenge to obey and to love. The prayer and the promise that will transform these men from struggling to even just accomplish small tasks, to be emboldened by a spirit of God to go and every one of them, with maybe the exception of one or two, will even lay down their lives boldly following him. 
John 17, verse 26, I have made you known, he prays to his Father, to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me would be in them and that I myself may be in them. Remember back to John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If loving God is required to obey, Jesus is making a way for us to accomplish that which he requires, and he's praying it to his Father. Father, that the love you have for me would be in them, and that I would be in them. Then they will be able to accomplish anything. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Toyota Motor Company has a problem-solving methodology they've developed. It's called the five whys. And it's a methodology designed to ask enough questions that gets you to the root of the problem. Now, I've used this technique in strategic planning on the positive side to take the priorities or the goals or the programs, activities that organizations do, and ask the question, why? And if you ask the question, why, enough, it should take you back to your core intent or your core purpose. And if not, then you might be in danger of what we call mission drift. I love to read the scripture with the big why in mind. Give you an example. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, because he was the perfect, blameless sacrifice, right, for sin. But why did there need to be a blood sacrifice? Oh, you know, life is in the blood, and there's a propitiation for sin, and this sacrifice makes a way for this. And No, but, but why did he set it up like that to begin with? God made the rules, didn't he? I mean, he wrote Leviticus. He could have set it up that three cartwheels were necessary to atone for sin. How about the military method? 50 push-ups, your sins are forgiven. Jesus didn't have to die to pay for sin. God could have set it up any way he wanted, right? So why did he intentionally set everything up knowing that Jesus would have to die? The answer is found in John 15. Greater love has no man than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. I have called you friends. Is it possible that God set the whole thing up in such a way, knowing that Jesus would have to die so that the Spirit would be sent so that he could display to us the greatest act of love? That we would know that he loves us. As we prepare to land this plane, I want to come back to the core of God's heart. Why did he want to have Jesus leave? Why did he want the Spirit to come? What was his intent and desire in it all? What was God's big why? John 14, verse 17, 20 and 23, we find the answer. The world cannot accept him. Because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you, and he will be in you. Verse 20 goes on. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. 
Again in verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. My Father will love them and we will come and we will make our home with them. We will abide, we will make up our abode, we will take residence within them. Union was Jesus' desire from the beginning. The Spirit is given to fulfill God's desire to be one with us. God existed outside of time. He was fully content in and of himself, but there was one thing he didn't have. He didn't have a counterpart. He didn't have someone like him, someone to pour out his limitless love upon. And so from his own image, from his very likeness, he created Adam. And he brought Adam in to that place in his heart and understanding what that was like when he brought every animal on the earth before him, one by one. And Adam named each animal. And he realized in that moment, there's no one like me. I don't have anyone to love. I don't have a counterpart. And so God laid him to the ground and took from within him Eve, and the one became two. At the act of the consummation of the marriage, the man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one. Ephesians chapter 5 says, For this reason, in verse 31, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. Paul said, this thing about marriage, this thing about union between a man and a woman, it's so mysterious, but I'm not really talking about marriage. I'm talking about Jesus and his bride. God took from himself and he created man in his very likeness. God laid that man to the ground and took from within him Eve. The one became two. The man shall leave his father and mother and this act of intimacy, the consummation of the marriage is where the two will come one as the man comes back into woman in unity. And you see the incredible parallel here. God creates us in his likeness and he lays Jesus into the ground that he would conquer sin and death, raise him up again, that the Spirit of God could come back into man, that we would be made one with him. John 17, Jesus goes on to pray in verse 21 and 23, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us so that the world would believe that you've sent me. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be brought together in perfect unity. Jesus is coming back one day for a glorious and spotless bride. You see, it's all about a love story. God's desire to be one with his creation. I don't know all of you here. I'm guessing this gym's full of ordinary people who at one point, maybe in this morning, are lost and alone. And we're facing extraordinary odds. We're called to accomplish something quite remarkable. God has made a way for us to 
overcome the enemy, the challenges and the trials that we face and to obey him through a radical love that he intends to fill our hearts with his spirit and the new innovation that will equip us and sustain us to accomplish that which he has required of us. And we will take this message of hope to a hopeless world. He has come to make his home in us. The desire of the Father before the foundation of the world. Fulfilling his promise to us forever. You will never have to be alone. You don't have to be lost. I will never leave you as orphans. I will come to you. that Philip said, pointing out the fact that so often as God is moving uh, in our hearts and in our lives that he, he seems to be the way that he's working, he's highlighting something to us. And so I want to give you a special invitation in this time to ask the Lord, what is it that he is highlighting today, this morning? What is it that he wants to do today in you and through you? Here's what I was feeling from the Lord. The first one was, Holy Spirit, what is it that you're doing now? And I think another thing that Jesus is saying this morning is that he wants you to answer is, how are you to respond to him? So what is it that he's doing? What is it that he's highlighting? And how does he want you to respond? You don't need better habits. You don't need better self-help books. You don't need whatever the thing is. The battle is internal. What you need is a powerful God to do a supernatural work in your heart. And that's what he wants to do this morning. And he wants you to be a part of that in other people's lives as well. Amen.